When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson, and I'm the owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Welcome to the show. This episode is an exciting one for me and was so much fun to research. It takes place during the time in Tudor history where my buddy, Thomas Seymour, really starts coming into the picture. The death of Henry VIII and the enactment of his will and the men who possibly changed the course of history. Edward VI's Regency Council. But as usual, I need to start by taking a minute to thank some pretty special people. Since the last podcast, I have two new patrons. Woohoo! It's so exciting. So I'd like to give a special shout out this week to Sarah C. and Michelle T. Thank you, ladies. You too can show your support by going to patreon.com slash tutors dynasty. Just click become a patron and for as little as a dollar per month, you can show your support. Lastly, hop on over to tutorsdynasty.com and visit my page of thanks. On that page, you'll see all the wonderful people who are currently supporting me. All right, this is going to be one of my longest episodes because there was just so much information out there that I wanted to share with you. So it went a little longer than usual. Let's get on with the show. Sit back, relax, and prepare to be transported back in time to 1547 England. As Henry VIII lay dying in his bedchamber in January 1547, Edward Seymour and William Paget were whispering in the gallery outside his chamber at Westminster, and they were plotting the future. This we know is true because Paget later calls out Edward Seymour on not following through on what they had discussed in the gallery. The letter is also a warning to his close friend. At the point of this letter, Thomas Seymour was already dead, and things were beginning to fall apart for Edward Seymour, Lord Protector. Here is part of the letter that was written by Paget to Edward Seymour. I see at the hand of the king's destruction and your ruin. If you love me or value my service since the king's father's death, allow me to write what I think. Remember what you promised me in the gallery at Westminster before the breath wasn't out of the body of the king that dead is? Remember what you promised immediately after, devising with me concerning the place which you now occupy? I trust in the end to goodness purpose, howsoever, things thwart now, and that was to follow mine advice in all your proceedings, more than any other man's, which promise I wish your grace had kept, for the I am sure things had not gone altogether as they go now. William Paget and Edward Seymour were friends. You could probably say they were very close friends. In May 1549, Paget wrote in a letter to Seymour his feelings for him. So deeply in my heart as it cannot be taken out, I could hold my peace as some others do and say little or nothing. In a July 1549 letter, he said, I have ever desired your authority to be set forth, ever been careful of honor and surety, both for now and forevermore, ever glad to please you, as ever was a gentle wife to please her husband, and an honest man his master I was. 
Paget clearly had strong feelings for his friendship with Edward Seymour. Where some might read an intimate relationship between the men, others like historian Susanna Lipscomb see Paget comparing their relationship to that of a master and servant, and also between spouses. It would not take long after the accession of Edward VI for William Paget to discover his close friend and Lord Protector would not see through his end of the deal. Henry VIII, in his will, named a regency council of 16 men, men who he trusted to keep his best interest in mind in the minority of King Edward. The late king's wish was to have a council to make decisions instead of one person. Henry had formed a privy council in 1540 and felt that the group of men had proved an effective executive body to the king. So for this reason, he believed a regency council would be better than, say, a regent. At some point after Henry submitted his final will and the death of Henry VIII, Edward Seymour recognized the council needed a leader. As Paget and Seymour whispered in the gallery of Westminster, they agreed that they would move forward to have Seymour named Lord Protector. Paget, in turn, because of his loyalty and friendship, would be his greatest advisor. The result being Seymour and Paget would be the two most powerful men in England. But before they could get that far, they would need to find allies within the council. Speaking of the king's mortality was treason and punishable by death. Those near him who knew he was about to die but were too afraid of the dying king's temper to prepare him for death. The only man who was brave enough was Sir Anthony Denny. Denny tiptoed around the topic to ask the king if he wished a priest to come give him his last rites. King Henry said, If I had any, it should be Dr. Cromer, but I will first take a little sleep, and then, as I feel myself, I will advise upon the matter. Those were the last known words of King Henry VIII. Not long after that incident, the king died. After the death of King Henry VIII, it was imperative for Seymour to respond immediately to the death of the king. And within hours, he left with Sir Anthony Brown, master of horse, and a force of 300 mounted troops to retrieve the new king from Hartford Castle. They traveled 25 miles by horse to reach him. One can imagine them riding as fast as they could. They needed to get to the new king first. A former servant of Sir Anthony Brown wrote this about what happened in a 1549 letter. Communing with my Lord's Grace in the garden at Enfield at the King's Majesty coming from Hartford, gave his frank consent, communication and discourse of the state, that his grace should be protector, thinking it, as indeed it was, both the surest kind of government and most fit for that commonwealth. Edward Seymour now had William Paget and Anthony Brown in his corner, champions to assist in making him Lord Protector. The following evening, they transported Edward to see his sister Elizabeth at Enfield. It was there that the siblings were informed of their father's death. Sir John Hayward, Edward VI's first biographer, reported that, "...never was sorrow more sweetly set forth, their faces seeming rather to beautify their sorrow than their sorrow to cloud the beauty of their faces." While Seymour was with Edward, and possibly Elizabeth as well, he received an urgent letter from William Paget at one or two in the morning on the 29th of January. Neither men had been sleeping well, and Paget was especially having a difficult time. You see, Edward Seymour had locked Henry VIII's will in a box and had accidentally taken the key with him. Because where the will was, the power was. With Seymour away, Paget needed immediate access to the most powerful document in England. 
In Seymour's response letter to Paget, he sent the key and some advice on what should be done with the will. Seymour didn't believe that anyone, other than the council, needed to see the will in its entirety. Seymour stated that they needed to be cautious and to only show as much as were necessary to be published for divers' respects that I think it not convenient to satisfy the world. Now we can also see the urgency in the plan when Seymour endorsed that letter on the outside to my right-loving friend, Sir William Pageant, one of the King's Majesty's two principal secretaries. Haste, post-haste, haste with all diligence, for thy life, for thy life. With access to the will, Paget would now be able to have the contents revealed as to who the members of the Regency Council would be and the executors of the late King's will. Seymour showed his leadership skills when on the 30th of January, he wrote to the council to discuss their idea of a general royal pardon. In the letter, he advises them to wait until the coronation of King Edward. If they waited, Edward, as the new king, would be looked upon favorably. Here's part of the letter. Your lordship shall understand that I, the Earl of Hartford, have received your letter concerning a pardon to be granted, in such form as in the schedule ye have sent, and that ye desire to know our opinions therein. For answer thereunto, ye shall understand we be in some doubt whether our power be sufficient to answer unto the king's majesty that now is, when it shall please him to call us to account for the same. And in case we have authority, so to do it, in our opinions the time will serve much better at the coronation than at the present. For if it should be now granted, his highness can show no such gratuity unto his subjects when the time is most proper for the same. And his father, who we doubt not be in heaven, having no need thereof, shall take the praise and thank from him that hath more need thereof than be. We do very well like your device for the matter. Mary, we would wish it to be done when the time serveth most proper for the same. That letter was signed by the Earl of Hartford and Anthony Brown. On the 31st of January, the commons were sent to the House of Lords. A grief-stricken Lord Chancellor Thomas Risley called upon William Paget, Secretary of State, to read to Parliament the parts of Henry's will that pertain to the succession, as well as who was named on the Regency Council. That afternoon, the new Regency Council met. However, three members were missing from the first meeting. Dr. Nicholas Watton was absent due to his residence at French Court. His brother, Sir Edward Watton, was in Calais, and Sir Thomas Bromley was not present. In their first council meeting, they all, well, those who were present, agreed that Henry's will instructed them to have full power and authority. After reading the late king's will, they fully resolved and agreed with one voice and content to stand to and maintain the last said will and testament of our said master. The council decided that one special man should be preferred to be their leader. This man should be of virtue, wisdom, and experience, on to be a special remembrancer, and one good at management. They renamed themselves the Privy Council, with Edward Seymour as its head. The following day on the 1st of February, the executors gathered again at the Tower of London. It was there that the will was read from beginning to end. Then the men all took their oath to King Edward and pledged their faithfulness to him. Sir William Paget was considered a close friend and confidant of Henry VIII. As Henry's secretary, he knew many of the dying king's wishes. Sometime during the early days of King Edward's reign, Paget made a long speech to the council that informed them of what he had believed to be the late king's wishes regarding the new honors for the council members. 
He said that during King Henry's final days that he and Seymour spent hours alone with the dying king. Paget said that King Henry had wished to advance certain men to higher titles as to increase the number of noblemen after attainers and death had left many vacancies. Paget also confirmed that Henry VIII's wish had been for Edward Seymour to claim Norfolk's old titles of Lord Treasurer and Earl Marshal. In the end, Edward Seymour, Earl of Hartford, would now be styled as Duke of Somerset. William Parr, John Dudley, and Thomas Risley took the following titles. William Parr became Marquess of Northampton, John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, Thomas Risley became Earl of Southampton. John Dudley wrote a letter to Secretary Paget about his wish to have the peerage of Earl of Warwick. Master Secretary, perchance some folks allege considerations concerning the not assignment of the Lordship of Warwick, saying it is a stately castle and a goodly park, and a great royalty, so that at the present there is no lands belonging unto it but the rents of certain houses in the town and certain meadows with the park of Wiganock. Of the which castle with the park and also of the town, I am constable, high steward, and master of the game with also the herbage of the park during my life. And because of the name, I am the more desirous to have the thing. And also I come of one of the daughter and heirs of the right and not defiled line. And then he goes on to say, The master of the horse would gladly, as I do perceive by him, have the lordship in Sussex that was the Lord Lorares, which in my opinion were better bestowed upon him or some such as would keep it up and serve the king in the country in maintaining a household, than to let it fall into ruin as it doth, with divers others like houses, being a great pity, and loss it will be at the length of the king and realm. Your own assuredly, Warwick. Sir Anthony Denny later told Roger Ascham that the court is a place so slippery that duty never so well done is not a staff stiff enough to stand by. Always very surely, where you shall many times reap most unkindness, where you have sown greatish pleasures, and those also ready to do you much hurt to whom you never intended to think any harm. So anyway... This episode wasn't supposed to be all about what happened after the death of Henry VIII, but I felt like I needed to kind of set the scene so that I could move on to the next part, which is listing the 16 men who were named to Edward VI Regency Council. So with that being said, let's look at the men who were supposed to make the decisions for a kingdom. Were they indeed the trusted men of King Henry VIII, or were they believers in Edward Seymour? First, we'll start with Thomas Cromner, Archbishop of Canterbury. Thomas Cromner is probably known best as the man who helped change the religion in England. It was Cromner who had a close relationship with the Boleyn family, and on the day of Anne's execution said, She who has been the Queen of England upon earth will today become a queen in heaven. So great was his grief that he could say nothing more, and then he burst into tears. Cromner definitely owed his rise in favor to Anne in the Boleyns, and after her execution must have felt broken and lost. It also does not surprise me that he was named one of the members of the Regency Council by Henry VIII. The king definitely have faith in Kramer. No pun intended. In his position on the Regency Council, with Somerset at the head, Cromner would have been happy to move forward with the Reformation. Next up, we have Thomas Risley. Thomas Risley studied civil law at St. Paul's School in London and Trinity Hall in Cambridge. He studied under Stephen Gardner. In 1524, Risley was employed by Cardinal Wolsey, and it was in that service that he met Thomas Cromwell. Nine years later, Thomas Risley would be in the service of Thomas Cromwell. 
I've read bits and pieces about Risley, but never put two and two together about how important of a figure he was at Tudor Court. On the 16th of February, 1547, Risley was given the title of First Earl of Southampton upon the request of the late King Henry. Risley had been one of the councillors who were against making Edward Seymour the Lord Protector. Risley did not believe one man should rule the country. Henry's will specifically stated that it should be a group of chosen men. Now, what do we know about Risley? Well, we know that he was the man responsible for personally torturing Anne Askew in 1546. We also know that he earned favor with Henry VIII when he assisted him with his great matter. He was ambassador to Brussels. He led the naval escort to bring Anne of Cleves to England. And it's also believed that Risley had similar powers as both Wolsey and Cromwell had, that he had been governing almost everything in England. Next up, we have William Paulette, or Lord St. John and Master of the Household. Lord St. John was what William Paulette styled himself as from 1539 to 1550. Paulette raised in peerage to Baron St. John in 1539. He was comptroller of the king's household, and Paulette also turned against Somerset in 1549 in support of John Dudley. St. John supported the Reformation, but refrained from politics. That being said, he was one of the 16 men on the King's Regency Council. St. John was named Treasurer of the Household in 1537 and then Chamberlain in 1543, followed by Great Master of the Household in 1545. Then in 1546, he was named as Lord President of the Privy Council. So he clearly had a good relationship with King Henry. Next up, we have Edward Seymour, Earl of Hartford and Great Chamberlain. Edward Seymour was the eldest uncle of King Edward VI. After the death of Henry VIII, he was voted by the Regency Council to be named Lord Protector of the Realm. It was in that position that Edward Seymour would experience the most dangerous experiences of his life. Without the approval and backing of the Regency Council, Seymour was alone. John Russell, First Earl of Bedford and Lord Privy Seal. John Russell actually served four of the Tudor monarchs. In 1506, John Russell was in service of King Philip and Queen Juana from Castile when they were shipwrecked off the English coast. Once ashore, the people sent the royal strangers to the finest house they knew, Wolfleton, the great house owned by Sir Thomas Trenchard, 10 miles away. Sir Thomas was at home, but he could not speak Spanish, so he sent for his kinsman, John Russell. John had been in Spain and could interpret the Spaniards were so delighted with his manner that they took him to see the king. Henry VII made Russell a gentleman of the privy chamber, a position which he remained at in the reign of Henry VIII as well. In 1509, Russell was employed in various military and diplomatic missions during the War of the League of Cambrai. He had many years of experience at court and had accompanied Mary Tudor, the king's sister, to France in 1514 for her marriage to King Louis XII. In 1520, Russell attended the Field of Cloth of Gold, and he was knighted on the 2nd of July, 1522, after losing an eye at the taking of Morlaix in Brittany. Sir John was named Lord Privy Seal by Henry VIII after the execution of Thomas Cromwell, who had held the title prior to his death. Next, we move on to John Dudley, Viscount Lyle and Lord High Admiral of England. John Dudley was the son of the ill-fated financial minister, Edmund Dudley. If you recall from a previous episode, Edmund Dudley and his counterpart, Robert Empson, were executed at the beginning of Henry VIII's reign. The men had been extremely unpopular during the reign of Henry VII due to all the taxes that were being subjected to the English subjects. By executing them, it brought favor to the new Tudor king. 
Under the tutelage of his guardian's brother, Sir Henry Guilford, a boon companion of Henry VIII, Dudley was trained as a soldier and courtier. Dudley was well-connected at court, and in the late 1530s, he was made governor of Calais. And in 1542, he was created Viscount Lyle and Lord High Admiral, a position which he held until he voluntarily renounced his position so it could be given to Sir Thomas Seymour. He then held the role again after the execution of Seymour until 1550. In my opinion, Dudley was one of the most ruthless men at Tudor court. He would do whatever it took to get what he wanted. It has always been my belief that he was the one who stirred up trouble between the Seymour brothers. He was also instrumental in the downfall of them both. Dudley took advantage of the dying king, Edward VI, and also, in my opinion, convinced him to name his new daughter-in-law as his heir. This is the funny thing about researching the Tudor heir. There are so many interesting characters to learn about that sometimes, over the years of researching, our opinions of them can change. It's possible that one day I'll discover he wasn't as despicable as I once suspected. But right now, he ranks right up there for me with Anne Stanhope, wife of Edward Seymour, Lord Protector. Moving on, next we'll have Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall of Durham. Of all the men listed as members of the Regency Council, Bishop Tunstall of Durham is the one I know the least about. I'll do my best to give you the information that I do have on him. Serving Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I, and Elizabeth I, Tunstall's career at court was a long one. In 1511, William Warham, Archbishop of Canterbury, made Tunstall his chancellor. A few years later, he was running diplomatic missions abroad for King Henry and Wolsey. Then in 1560, he was made Master of the Rolls, an office which he held for six years and would on occasion act as the Keeper of the Privy Seal. And then seven years later, he became Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal. After the downfall of Cardinal Thomas Wolsey in 1530, Tunstall succeeded him as Bishop of Durham, which involved Tunstall having significant power within the territory of the diocese. In 1537, Tunstall became president of the new Council of the North. Though he was often engaged, preoccupied with ongoing negotiations with Scotland, he had time to attend Parliament and participated in the discussion of the Bill of Six Articles. So, as you can tell, Tunstall was a man on the rise at court and clearly had favor with the king, which is a little surprising because he was one of the men, along with Bishop Fisher and Thomas More, that represented Catherine of Aragon during the divorce proceedings. Tunstall spared himself from execution by playing the part. Even if he didn't agree with what was going on, he understood that it would do him no good to follow Fisher and more. Next on the Regency Council is Sir Anthony Brown, who was Master of Horse. Sir Anthony Brown was another man very close to the king and other members at court. Brown's half-brother was William Fitzwilliam, Earl of Southampton, and the men had shared a mother. It is believed that Brown, born around 1500, was at court from an early age and was probably raised in the royal household. You see, his father was a standard bearer to King Henry VII. Brown's service to the king began in about 1518, and by the following year, he was made gentleman of the privy chamber, a position kept him very near the king. Because of this position, Brown became one of the king's closest in his circle of friends. These friends were called his minions. Another man who was part of this group of friends was Sir Francis Bryan, the vicar from hell. Over the years, Brown's favor with the king continued to grow and grow. He was knighted in 1520 by Thomas Howard, then the Earl of Surrey, for his service against the French. He was appointed lieutenant of the Isle of Man and then in 1527 served the king as ambassador to France. 
It is believed to be Brown's sister, Elizabeth Somerset, who was the person who provided the testimony to build the charges of adultery against Anne Boleyn. While it appears that Brown supported Henry in the downfall of Anne Boleyn in 1536, he also briefly fell from favor that year when he showed his support to returning the Lady Mary to the succession. Sir Anthony Brown assisted Edward Seymour in the French Wars in the 1540s when they were successful in securing England's coastal defenses. Brown was returned a favor and continued to serve the king until his last day. In his will, King Henry VIII named Brown an executor to the king's will and a member of the Regency Council. Next on the list is Sir Edward Montague, Chief Judge of the Common Pleas. Unfortunately, I was not able to find any information on Sir Edward Montague. So with that, we'll move on to Thomas Brumley, who was a judge. He was the judge of the King's Bench, and he was absent from the meeting where the council voted to make Edward Seymour Lord Hartford as Lord Protector of the Realm. Unfortunately, again, I was unable to find any more information on Thomas Brumley. The same will go for Sir Edward North, Chancellor of Augmentations, and Sir William Paget, Chief Secretary, who we've pretty much already covered a lot on, so I'm going to skip over him as well. Next, we move to Sir Anthony Denny, who was Chief Gentleman of the Privy Chamber. In the final years of Henry VIII's life, Sir Anthony Denny was his chief gentleman of the Privy Chamber and groom of the stool. He and the king were constantly together. Denny was also a co-keeper of the king's dry stamp in 1546, and the use of that stamp is what has history buffs wondering if it may have been misused. Denny was with the king in France and was knighted at Boulogne, and the king even trusted Denny to his privy purse. Next, we have Sir William Herbert, who was chief gentleman of the Privy Chamber. A few days after Henry VIII's death, Herbert, Paget, and Denny informed the council that they had remembered more things that were their late king's wishes. Like, these things were so important that it just escaped the king's mind at the time that he made up his will, and they just so happened to remember it. But because of their flood of memory, Edward Seymour became Duke of Somerset, William Parr became Marquess of Northampton, John Dudley became Earl of Warwick, and and Thomas Risley became Earl of Southampton. What a great memory these guys have. And now we're going to wrap it up with the Watton brothers. Sir Edward Watton was treasurer of Calais. Edward Watton's duties in Calais prevented his frequent attendance at the council, and he was probably a non-factor when it came to votes by the council as well. And there's his brother, Dr. Nicholas Watton, who is the Dean of Canterbury in York. Nicholas Watton was one of the men charged with going to Cleves and getting a glimpse of Anne of Cleves for King Henry. But in that mission, he failed miserably and complained that he could not see her face beneath her voluminous headdress. And with that, this extra long episode comes to an end. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. Until next time.